Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Paul Engler. He is the founding director of the Center for the Working Poor, which is in Los Angeles. He is a founder of Momentum Training, MomentumCommunity.org, and he is the co-author with Mark Engler of This is an Uprising. How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century, which is a book you absolutely need to get. Paul Engler, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you on. It was great to read this book. It is very, very well done. One of the points of the book, and something that's stated early on, I think, is that disruptive mass movements are responsible for more change in the world than uh, what you refer to as the legislative endgame that can come after these momentous movements. Do activists often get sidetracked on what is less important in terms of trying to change the world? Hell yeah. I mean, I think everyone sees and gives credit to the people that pass the legislation. But what we see is that, like Hillary Clinton, will say anything to get elected. I mean, she will switch issues whenever the weather changes, uh, and she knows it's politically beneficial for her, especially within the Democratic Party. Well, that's a good example. It's like, well, she was not for LGBT rights, for same-sex marriage, but when we got 55% of the American public supporting it, which took decades um, to do, then she flipped. And not just she flipped, lots of politicians flipped. Everyone had this moral conversion, quote-unquote, they had this I saw Jesus moment. Well, what is that about? What is that moment about? It's not them. All of a sudden, we have these politicians praying more, and then they, they have this moral conversion. It's because it becomes politically possible to do something that was politically impossible just five years ago. Well, why does that happen? That happens because movements target not the politicians, they target the public and change the weather that makes you know, everything possible, and politicians are really just following the weather. So, but the problem is, is all the publicity, all the media focuses their attention on the end game. They focus their attention on Washington, D.C. You know, every day on the papers, what Obama says, they're not focusing on the real players that change the whole weather of the country, and they're doing it all the time. And Francis Fox Pippen, who's an amazing scholar, um, uh, uh, sociology and social work, she's done incredible amounts of uh, historical study and says basically if you want to trace all the major egalitarian reforms in the United States of America, ending slavery, getting Social Security, um, the Civil Rights Act, all those things happened because movements changed the weather. They were seen as impossible just five, ten years earlier from politicians who are playing the inside game. It's an extremely important point you're making about movements, I think, but I actually take the point you made about Hillary Clinton to be something in her favor. I mean, I'm disgusted by her pretending to be against the TPP corporate trade agreement because I don't believe she is. I believe, you know, when she's elected, she'll switch to her real position, which is in favor of it. And I could list dozens of things. But for uh, an elected official in a democracy to actually change their view because the public changed its view, uh, that's what I like. 
you know, we have all these uh, politicians who say, I ignore polls, I ignore the public, and the public just cheers and screams, oh, please kick us in the face, we want you to ignore us. Uh, okay. You know, I, I think the more democratic, small d, democratic uh, inclination would be to applaud a politician, if there ever was one, who said, I will change my views in response to public demand. I, I think you're totally right. The, the problem is, is that uh, I don't know if I can trust that once she gets elected. But I agree with you. I actually think it's good that politicians are responding. What I would like them to do, though, is do what Bernie Sanders does, which is actually support a cause that is morally right before it's actually that popular. Or before, even a lot of times it's popular, but another thing social movements do is they polarize the public in a positive way. The same way we've seen on the right, the with the religious right and the right-wingers, uh, the conservatives have done, which is creates this, what we call, active popular support for a cause. So it's, uh, there's a lot of popular issues, like gun control or campaign. Um, they're incredibly popular, but because they don't have active popular support, because people aren't going to vote uh, specifically around those issues, they're not going to use their vote to support a movement around it, because there isn't really a good movement that's mobilizing people, then politicians don't listen. So, But I agree with what you're saying. I mean, we actually want politicians to be responsive to the people. My, my criticism of, of Hillary Clinton is more personal, and maybe I shouldn't even bring it up on this uh, oh, show. Oh, no. but I, Criticism, yeah. Criticizing Hillary Clinton is more than welcome on this show. Uh, <laughs> okay. Anyone who does not have the decency to do everything they can to stop that woman, uh, you know, needs to listen to more of this show. But uh, yeah. that means I, I just wanted to make a point about politicians following the public will, because I actually want them to do that, and I know you yeah. you agree. Um, but but you in the book you go into this this debate between uh, those who who advocate for a, a movement that really changes the the public the the public atmosphere in a in a dramatic and unpredictable way uh, versus the the sort of activism that does a very small term uh, small scale predictable things that you can you know you can get a funder to to give you money to go get co-sponsors on a very weak bill that's doomed not to pass and so forth uh, but you couldn't get anyone to you know fund creating a new movement by disrupting events or videotaping being the police or, or anything of the sort. How do you, uh, how do you frame that uh, debate, and, and where do you come down? Well, I mean, in some ways, the book is, is a great apologist, or we're great supporters of movement. Um, and I really study this stuff. I mean, I research polls. I research lots of studies that show the impact of something like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or Fight for 15. And if you look at these campaigns, when they started, the public, a lot of people in the public, a lot of other activists who are more about trying to have a laser focus on what is possible within the political current circumstance, um, lobbyists, Democratic politicians, looked at these movements and they said, you're impractical, why are you doing these protests? You haven't changed anything. Because these protest movements, uh, these mass protest movements like Occupy, you know, sometimes don't even have a demand. They function in a different way Well, traditional sort of advocacy groups. Uh, we call this structure-based organizing, like community organizing or even lobbyists 
they function in a different way. Really trying to change the weather, and and because of that, they're actually liberated to do things that actually target the public. They they, they do symbolic protests. They do things where they don't care as much about whether or not they actually win, really practical or small. What they care about is whether or not they're winning. They're going to win the public. At least a lot of people in those mass protest movements. And actually, that's a really good strategy because what happens is, is once you change the weather, everything else changes. Like if you look at Occupy Wall Street, okay? Now people say, oh, it didn't have a clear demand. Oh, it didn't, it, it didn't win anything specific. Well, that's not actually true. Changing the weather around income inequality in the United States of America has drastically changed the weather for, for state, city level, a lot of things have changed. Politicians have been able to run on a different narrative. We've had millionaire taxes in California and New York who, because of the change of weather, because of the change of public opinion on Occupy Wall Street, actually passed when before they were going to get killed. We have little, little pieces of legislation um, that is being passed around bank reform, and even in... in little cities or, or, or state, state government, plus you have this total change of weather that we see right now in the Democratic primary. I think if anybody is looking at the polls and doing the research, you realize that that would have been impossible without Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. And the same thing with Black Lives Matter. Like, Black Lives Matter has dramatically changed. If you see a poll um, of the people who saw race relations as an important issue in the United States of America, you would see that for 20 years, there was probably about, you know, maybe 10% or less of the public that has seen that as, as a major issue or the most important issue in the United States of America. All of a sudden, you have Black Lives Matter, and the numbers quadruple in the amount of people who think it's the most important issue and the issue that is important to actually act around. Those changes, if you're looking at polls, happen within one lifetime. It's very rare, and it doesn't happen. If you look at it, it's very rare that it would ever happen unless there's a movement that changes public opinion dramatically. We're speaking with Paul Engler, who's co-author of This is an Uprising. Go get this book. Uh, Paul, it, it seems to me that part of this changing the weather comes down to getting on national television uh, through through smart strategy uh, of disrupting events, through perseverance, trying over and over again, or through sheer luck, uh, getting your message on television uh, would it would it perhaps make as much sense for all of the activist organizations that are picking away at little small changes and taking a step forward and two back uh, to pull their resources and create a television network uh, that would actually report on popular uh, movements day in day out for for years to come or or is it uh, am I missing how how something is forced into the the conversation and and a change in the climate well I well first thing I want to say is that even if the media is has animosity towards us which it does because it's corporate media there still is opening. There still is openings. Occupy Wall Street got a massive amount of press, okay? And I just want to say this, too. People get confused because they think that the public doesn't like really disruptive tactics. They don't like matter shutting down the street or 
you know, general strikes or things like this. And they're right. The public doesn't like those tactics. And in the civil rights movement, uh, in the 60s, everyone glamorizes it now. Everyone says, I love Martin Luther King. But actually, in the 60s, people did not like civil rights tactics. But it didn't really matter, because what the tactics were doing was elevating the issue. And if you pull around the issue, if you really look at the studies around whether or not it changed people's opinions or race relations around civil rights, what you'll realize is that the tactic matters less than the actual issue. Now, there's some exceptions to that. I mean, I think when people start using violence or property destruction, either on the right or the left, from the conservatives or from progressives, then the public turns against the issue. But in general, if you can remain nonviolent, if you're very disruptive, you elevate the narrative, even in mainstream media, because that is what the, what the media covers, whatever bleeds, you know, what bleeds, bleeds. And so doing disruption, doing highly sacrificial actions like hunger strikes, you know, shutting down um, streets, getting mass civil disobedience, mass marches, you know, things that require lots of sacrifice actually really help break into the corporate media. But this is what I have to say about independent media. Independent media is great. And in other countries, like in Italy or in Europe, they have a whole tradition of very established alternative media. This is very helpful to get stories to break into the cycle, but you're always going to be competing and always going to be one part of, of a media ecosystem. And you're never going to just get... And already we have alternative media, like we have Amy Goodman, Democracy Now!, all this other stuff. And so I think, like, people who think it's a golden bullet that we get alternative media, I, I don't think, I think it's one part that helps of a complete strategy of how we have to build social movement. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I just think it might be a helpful part. Um, th there's a very interesting section in your book where you talk about movements that are seen on, on certain terms as immediately being uh, failures, but are quickly recognizable as successes. And, and you look at Gandhi's Salt March and at Birmingham uh, and at the Occupy movement. Um, can, you, can you talk about uh, how a failure can actually be a success? Well, I think, like I was saying before, the media and the public, a lot of times they're judging movements on a different um, metrics, on a different way of seeing how movements work. They're saying, oh, did Occupy actually win anything concrete right now? And what they're not looking at is whether o Occupy changed the weather, because that's the way they're trained. They're, they're trained to say, oh, it's the politicians that have power. And if the movement actually moves the politician to do a little piece of legislation here or there, that, then you're a victory. But what they're not really measuring is whether or not these movements are breaking into the mainstream media, elevating narratives and voices that are never being told or heard, and whether or not that change in weather is actually having an impact. They're not measuring that. They, they, in some ways, they're, they're hyper-focused on on seeing the little actors or the monolithic or the single person that has power, and they're, they're forgetting what actually moves that person. And so I think that if, if we look at that, what you'll see is that when people are saying this was a failure, that was a failure, that was a failure, what you'll see is that those movements actually did change the weather that is still creating lots of social change, like we see at Occupy. Another good example is ACT UP. 
in the 80s. I mean, this was the AIDS crisis for the first, I think it was the first five to eight years. I mean, it was a long time before Reagan even publicly acknowledged that the AIDS crisis existed. There were tens of thousands of people dying, um, uh, and there was less money being put into research and to support these people that were dying of AIDS. And then, like, uh, a, a little Tylenol scare uh, in, that happened, uh, you know, two or years before it. I mean, there was an incredible underfunding, probably because of homophobia and the fact that people who were dying of AIDS were primarily Haitian immigrants, people of color, women, and these, these gay men. And so what, what ACT UP did is it dramatically elevated the narrative of the AIDS crisis, that tens of thousands of people were dying alone without the support of the government, and that, and that everyone had to listen, that silence equals death, and it worked. Now, people who look at it and say, oh, but they were so isolated, they were totally unpopular, they didn't actually win any little piece of legislation here or there, they don't understand. They're just judging the movement based on a metric that doesn't make sense because they changed the whole weather yeah. of the AIDS crisis in the United States. Yeah, uh, well said. Uh, you you recommend in the book that that a campaign to change the climate should uh, should involve disruption, sacrifice, and escalation. How do you how do you uh, plan out a campaign from the start that is going to uh, include all three of those things? Well, I think, you know, a lot of the organizations that are traditional advocacy organizations, which we call structure-based organizing tradition, a lot that comes from the community organizing tradition in the United States of America. Some people might have heard of Saul Linsky, who's like a famous figure in the 60s that created a whole model of how you organize and build organizations that empower people, or even just traditional advocacy groups like environmental groups in Washington, D.C., like Sierra Club and all these other groups, they have their role, but they're not thinking about how to escalate. And in some ways, they're not going to get the resources to escalate from funders, from people who want to play it safe, okay? And also, the fact that their tactics are disruptive, it, is, it turns off a lot of the people who have a lot of money. But if you look at history, if you look at social movements, it's the students that are the ones that are able to change the weather and do these mass protests. In the 60s, it was SNCC who really led the civil rights movement to do these more disruptive tactics. And because there are these upstart organizations and they're less established, they're actually willing to risk more, and they can risk more. And because of that, they have a whole array of tactics that are different because what they're, they're focusing on disruption, sacrifice, escalation, things that will get the media to pay attention, make people take a side in the issue. And so we need a lot more of that, because right now climate change is never going to be won within the current political weather. Climate, climate change legislation, climate justice, is going to be won through a mass movement that has to change the weather. And so we need to start thinking about strategies that change the weather instead of traditional advocacy or structure-based organizing. Yeah, I, I spent years working for Acorn, which I, I think falls into that category, uh, but uh, I, I think blends into the other category as well. Uh, you 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 highlighted in the book the the Otpor movement uh, as something of uh, of an ideal 
uh, example of a hybrid uh, of of types of of movements. Can you recount beef briefly why uh, why that's a good a case? Well, Apoor is is just an amazing social movement uh, in that arose in the late '90s in Europe and Serbia and overthrew this horrible dictator Milosevic, who was called the the Butcher of the Balkans. He was a brutal dictator. Um, uh, you know, did ethnic cleansing uh, and and wars throughout the region. You know, he was he was just horrible in so many ways. And people thought he was incredibly popular after NATO bombing. The United States bombed Serbia, and after that, the, there was a lot of nationalist fervor in the country that supported him. So no one thought it was possible. But this this movement emerged partly, mostly led by students, and then it became so broad that. It overthrew the dictator, and basically, I mean, what I'll say about this is that we in the United States of America are so focused on just the way we organize here, and what we have to realize is in other countries, there's these amazing models of organization, of ways of organizing that are just give us a whole insight into different ways of thinking about social movements, thinking about how we could win, and Oppor is one of them. This little raggedy student group that had no money went up against one of the most powerful dictators in the world and won. And it won through doing something that was really amazing in organizationally. It was kind of like the first nonviolent open source movement. It had a very decentralized structure. But and also they did mass amounts of, of public education. We call it mass training. Where instead of just training people in nonviolent discipline, like in the United States of America, a lot of people who do activism or direct activism or get arrested, they do a two-hour training. These people train people over a week in strategy and um, the elements of how movements work and um, the, the tools and skills. I mean, imagine if Bernie Sanders trained 40,000 or 100,000 people in a training that lasted an entire week in the basics of how to overthrow the government, you know, in a in a positive way, I mean, through a democratic change. I mean, it would, it would rock our world. We don't have an image of how to do that. Um, and that's one of the things that we learned from Opport is how do you create a decentralized organizational structure that can absorb the momentum of something like an Occupy or a Black Lives Matter or a Bernie Sanders campaign? What are the models for absorbing that momentum so that it, it doesn't just die out after the momentum dies down? Opport is an incredible model of doing that. I agree, and the book does a tremendous job of, of painting that picture. The book is called This is an Uprising. Um, of course, there are many demands I would want a popular movement to bring to a Bernie Sanders government that Bernie is not uh, himself ready uh, to go for uh, unprompted. Um, but uh, what do you say to the criticism of these uh, of these color revolutions that this is nonviolent activism uh, being put to the ends that the U.S. government uh, supports, and you're as likely to end up with a with a, a friendly U.S. government puppet as with a true democracy. Um, is there a is there a problem with using nonviolence uh, when Washington actually agrees with you? Well, it's kind of um, it, it's kind of a, a naive and I think condescending leftist attitude in the United States. Okay, I'm a leftist. I'm a progressive. But there, these countries in the color revolutions were supported by leftists and progressives in those countries, okay? And what we say is, like, 
we have this idea that's very um, simplified of it's just U.S. and everyone else, uh, you know, and all the lefties fighting against the United States, which in some cases is true. But a lot of times it's more complex than that. And the people who you need to listen to about this are the leftists in those countries. I tell you, the, the people who are progressive and leftists in those countries needed these movements to overthrow these dictators, which are crony capitalists. I mean, they were, some of them had the, the air of being communists, but they were, they were communists. They were, just like we have we see in China, they were crony capitalists that were dictators, that were brutal. And I think every, almost every single leftist in Serbia who knows anything about the country says that they're better off having overthrown Sovolan Milosevic and that their country is more democratic now and there's more space for leftist reforms, for progressive reforms in those countries, okay? Yeah. Now, same thing with Poland, same within the Solidarity Movement, now same thing with a lot of different the colored revolutions, okay? Now, is there problems in the country? Hell yeah. I mean, in all those movements, a lot of them are, shouldn't be blamed for those problems. A lot of them are trying to address those problems, or at least were the leftist forces that were fighting against neoliberalism, and or at least now a lot of those activists are now fighting against neoliberalism. There's exceptions to that. That's true. Now, there are some countries where, where the, the movement did not do as much as it should have or could have against neoliberalism, against conservative capitalist policies that were that were put in after the revolution, but we shouldn't blame the movement necessarily for that problem. Right. Although, and you touch on this in the book, I think, the, the problem of follow-through in, in cases like Egypt, where you throw out what's there, but you don't have something uh, to replace it with. Um, but I think there's a big contrast with Iraq or Libya or Afghanistan, where people will not say they're better off uh, since the, the U.S. intervention. Um, we, we have uh, just like two minutes left. Um, I wonder what advice you can offer to the movement that I work with the most, which is the peace movement where many people are against big rallies, against protest, against disruption, want to turn to lobbying and counter-recruitment and things that can be measured. Um, what advice do you, do you offer to a movement against war? Uh, look, I, I, know, I know it sounds like I'm against traditional organizing on phone call. I mean, my, my argument is actually more nuanced. I do think there is a role for lobbying. There is a role for structure-based organizing. But to be honest with you, uh, I don't really have to worry about that. There's plenty of people and plenty of resources that are really working um, on doing traditional advocacy and structure-based organizing. What is missing from the ecology, what is missing from right now in the United States is a, is a popular, nonviolent movement against militarization, right, against the military-industrial uh, complex, against war, and preparing for um, basically stopping the next war. And so what we need is we need a lot more attention to how to create movements that use sacrifice, deep personal sacrifice, hunger strikes, mass civil disobedience, mass marches, and uh, thinking through also how to frame issues in very popular ways and escalate so that we can create popular movements. And that is not necessarily um, outside of the frame of the peace movement of their own history, because in 
in uh, you know after the the uh, 9/11, uh, before the Second Iraq War, the movement had a, a mass popular nonviolent movement uh, because we were on the defensive. I think we need an offensive. We need to be thinking about how to build that movement without the support of actually trying to stop a war, but actually trying to stop a future war. Very, very well said is not a simplistic argument at all. It is very uh, well argued in the book. This is an uprising. Paul Engler, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.